as we come now to the proclamation of God's word. We find ourselves continuing through the gospel of Matthew as we are still in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And we are looking at Christ's words regarding the coming destruction to Jerusalem and also his return. So we find ourselves this morning in Matthew 24, verses 14 through 15. Jesus continues speaking to his disciples, saying, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. And in those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved." But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform their great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, He is in the wilderness. Do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever the corpse, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And in all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather in his elect from the four winds, from the end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's holy word. Father, we pray now as we come to your word again that you would uh, bless us, that you would help us to see the face of Christ and in seeing that we might believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, all good things must come to an end. It's a familiar saying. I'm sure we've all heard it. We've even said it. And there's sort of sadness to it, isn't there? 
All good things must come to an end. It's like the loss of a good time, the the end of a party when everyone must go home. There's a little bit of disappointment there. But what if the end of a good thing meant the beginning of something better? Uh, Then there wouldn't be the disappointment or displeasure. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was certainly a tragic and dramatic thing. It was the end of a good thing. For God had designed the temple. He had designed its worship, its sacrificial system as a way for the people of Israel to worship God and know Him and hear His words of forgiveness and be reminded of His covenant promises that He would be sending a deliverer, a mediator to once for all take away all their sins. But the destruction of that temple meant that the coming of something better was on its way, not just for the Jewish people of the first century, but for all peoples in every part of the world, across all of history, from the past to the present and onward. From the tragedy of the temple's destruction comes the beauty of God's grace. Now last week we saw at the beginning of Matthew 24, that Jesus had again predicted the fall of Jerusalem and, and specifically the destruction of that temple. He said it would be very complete. Not one stone would be left standing upon another. And beginning in verses 15 through 35, he is now laying out more details of what will happen in those days for that generation Uh, when Jerusalem would be under siege by the Roman Empire and the temple would be destroyed. And what he is describing is the end of the old way. We recall that the disciples had asked Jesus, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? When is it going to happen? How will we know? And so Jesus now in verse 15 And again, drawing heavily upon the language of the prophets, begins to make that known to them and to show them how this will transpire, what those days will be like. What we get from that then is that this prediction of the fall of the temple, the destruction that would come upon Jerusalem, it was not something unexpected. For the prophets have been foretelling of this for centuries as part of God's redemptive history. So Jesus begins to explain to them what Jerusalem will be like in those days. And he says that when it begins to happen, the people must flee for safety when they see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. So you read that and you say, well, what is he talking about? What is this abomination of desolation? Well, that phrase itself is lifted directly from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. There Daniel says, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And this literally is uh, a desolating sacrilege or a, a devastating pollution. Something that comes in and pollutes that which was once sacred so much that it must be abandoned. 
And so there's this great sense of impurity, of, of making something unclean, something that was holy and sacred and rendering it now completely desolate. This would be a horrifying event committed in the temple. It would render the temple and its worship impossible because the temple is now a place of impurity. How can you worship a holy God in this impure, impure temple? In Daniel's prophecy, that abomination of desolation that he predicted was the defiling of the temple by a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a Hellenistic king of the Greek Seleucid Empire who in 167 BC desecrated the temple in one of the most profane ways. He set up a pagan altar there in the middle of the temple and offered a sacrifice of a pig upon it. And uh, uh, pigs, as you know in the, in the Jewish, the, the law of the Old Testament, according to the ceremonial law, were an unclean animal. They were not fit for sacrifice. So this indeed was an abomination of desolation. The Jewish people were now not able to worship God as God had prescribed. The temple was unclean. And Antiochus did that because he wanted to abolish temple worship in the worst possible way, sending a very clear message to the people of Judea that they are prohibited from worshiping their God. They must bow to the pagan gods of the Greeks. And so it was an abomination of desolations. In Daniel's prophecy, what we see is that it is an act of of God's judgment upon the people. For they had continually rebelled against God and violated His law. And so God was saying, just as you have mocked me and my holiness, I will bring the same upon that symbol of national pride, that thing that you cherish the most, that temple. Now, the event, that event of Antiochus Epiphanes was part of Jewish history by the time Jesus says these words and makes his prophetic announcement in verse 15. And so he has another event in view, and that is why Matthew adds this little grammatical remark. It's in parentheses if you have um, several different English versions, use parentheses, let the reader understand. He's saying, look, it's not what Antiochus did, but it's the same thing. It's an abomination of desolation. When Matthew wrote his gospel... It was actually written around the year A.D. 70 when the destruction of the temple occurred. And so he wants his readers to understand that this is specifically what Jesus had in mind when he said, watch for the abomination of desolations. And when you see it, flee, run to the hills. And as we consider this though, we don't know exactly what the specifics were taking place in the temple 
But we do understand that Jesus has in mind the general destruction of it. It could have been several events. Uh, In 67 AD, there was a Jewish civil war, uh, a power struggle in Jerusalem. And it was very violent. And the Jewish zealots who wanted to uh, go to war with Rome actually desecrated the temple themselves, uh, coming into it with their polluted feet and mocking the temple worship. This could also be when the Roman troops entered the very temple before they pulled its walls down and they set their battle standards around the temple area in defiance. And much like Antiochus, they desecrated the temple by offering sacrifices before those standards. And of course, there was also the burning and destruction of the temple itself shortly after the siege of Jerusalem. And that event rendered the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem utterly impossible. The destruction of this temple was so complete that, like Jesus said, there was not left a stone standing. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll, you'll see that wailing wall. That is actually not part of the temple walls. That is simply the substructure that is left. The actual walls are completely gone. Now because this soon to come destruction would be so swift and dangerous, Jesus has a message to the inhabitants of Jerusalem here. He's telling them to flee, to run. Verses 16 through 22 describe the state of not just Jerusalem, but the entire region of Judea during this period of time of the Jewish war with Rome. No town in place would be safe. He says, let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house and let the one who is in his field not turn back and take his cloak. You see, there's this swiftness of this coming calamity. The people are to abandon everything so that they might escape. If they have gone into the upper rooms of their homes, they should not come down. They should hide so they not suffer at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And for those that saw the armies of Rome coming as they fled their fields, they should not turn back to get their cloak to take anything but flee as far as they could, lest they be captured and destroyed. Jesus also offers a lament for the vulnerable during the time of the destruction in Jerusalem and Judea. He says in verse 19, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Refugees are always in a horrible situation and at great danger. But it seems that during these kind of tragedies, these kind of calamities of war, that it is the pregnant mothers, the mothers with young children that suffer the worst. And so we see again the, the tenderness of Christ here as he's weeping for them, for what is about to transpire. 
Jesus says that the people should pray that their flights, their, their running, should not be in winter or the Sabbath. Winter is a harsh time even in the Judean hill country. It is, it is subject to heavy rains and flooding. It is treacherous. And of course, on the Sabbath, the people are at rest. They are not as alert or prepared for the coming army. They would not have the time to gather provisions for they had not started the week yet. And we get the sense then that this will be a terrible time upon Israel, upon Jerusalem. The siege and the destruction will bring great suffering. And we have eyewitness accounts that tell us that that is exactly what happened. It was a horrible time. And for those that experienced it, it felt like the end of the world. As Jesus says in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Jesus is speaking here, of course, with hyperbolic language. It's hyperbole. Uh, He isn't saying that the world hasn't seen infliction and tribulation like this in the past, because it certainly has. And he is also not saying that the world will never suffer like Jerusalem suffered in those days, because it certainly has. He's just speaking in hyperbole. We do the same thing, you know, as uh, we might say, you know, you never wash the dishes. Well, of course, you probably do sometimes. Just not very often. So it feels like you never wash the dishes. You probably should wash the dishes more if your spouse says that to you. But that's what Jesus is saying here. It seems like it's the end of the world. Like you've never seen anything like this before and never will see it again. But the world's seen its share of tragedies just like this, from Noah's flood to Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction to the bloody warfare of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Greeks, on into the Holocaust, and even current wars and and genocides and great calamities. All of them are tragic. And for those who live through those experiences, it feels like the end of the world. I mean, certainly some people question that from this past year, wondering what is going on? Is this the end of the world? It it felt like it. For those of us that uh, experienced September 11th, and I realize as I'm getting older, that is like ancient history to some of you. But boy, it felt like the end of the world. We wondered what is going on? This is a terrible tragedy. That's how it was for the people of Jerusalem. It felt like the end. Calamities do that. Calamities, though, also bring out false messiahs and false prophets. And so as Jesus continues to describe this time in Jerusalem, he says that if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Of course, that is not possible. But they do lead astray many. A false Christ is one who claims to be a deliverer, but he is not. And a false prophet is one who claims to be a messenger from God, but is not. 
You see, false Christ, false prophets, whatever they are, or whoever they are, love to capitalize on crises and calamities. You see that all the time. And death and destruction draws in scavengers looking to benefit from the destruction of others. What's the saying? Never let a good crisis go to waste. False prophets in Christ don't do that. As Jesus puts it in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where the crisis is, you'll find the false messiahs, the false promises of deliverance. And boy, do they look and sound good. You want to hear them. You'll want to listen. You want to receive them. Jesus says they perform wonders in signs. Hey, they'll do amazing things, maybe even good things. But they are not the Christ. For there is but one Christ. They cannot do the one thing that people need and that is bring a true end to all the suffering and the tragedy of this world. They cannot bring real deliverance. Promised deliverers, false Christs, they can be actual people or they could simply be an idea, an event, a weapon, a drug. We turn to, as humans, all sorts of Christs and prophets that promise us peace, but in the end they fail us. And we turn to them both in times of great crisis, like what we see in Jerusalem in AD 70, or pandemics. And we turn to them even in those small crises of our lives. And we promise to ourselves as we struggle just through the ins and outs of life that, hey, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better parent, a better husband, a better wife. If only things were different, if only there was this deliverer, things would be better. The world would change. My life would change if only I had a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Self-help, step-by-step guides to success, promise deliverance from everything, ranging from financial struggles to, to better health, to better marriages or job success. And we turn to those things as humans. We are attracted to those things. As Calvin said, our hearts truly are factories of idols. We want to look to other deliverers. Some people might turn to medicine as good as, and important and as gracious as medicine is, a good gift of God, but they hope that it is that miracle that will deliver them from whatever crisis they are facing in their lives. Others might turn to their government thinking it will deliver them from the situation they see in the world and their lives. Some might turn to Christ's of violence and revolution, hoping it will change things for the better. But it only makes things worse. Indeed, calamities and crises, great and small, global and personal, bring out the vultures of the false Christs and the false prophets. And the scary thing is, some of those vultures nest within our own hearts and our own sin nature, which is why we need the gospel. We need the real Christ. 
In the case of the siege of Jerusalem, there were many people claiming that Jesus would be would return, that the Messiah would actually come there. Maybe some of these had actually seen Christ in his life, because this happens in that their generation, and maybe they had borne witness to the crucifixion, and now they're saying, hey, look, look, he's here in the wilderness. The Romans are coming. This is the end. Here's the Christ. No, that's not how it works. Or maybe it is in a secret room, and some inner knowledge that you have to gain to be delivered. But Jesus says, look, When the Messiah comes, when the Son of Man comes, and he's talking here about his second advent. Remember, when when prophecy is given, which is what this is, there's a collapsing of horizons. So he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's also, at points, talking about his second coming. And he does this to make a contrast. He says, look, disciples, don't believe the false Christs that say that I've come back. Because that's not how I'm going to come. But he says in verse 27, when I come, it will be sudden and it will be clear and the whole world will see. It will not be a secret when the king returns. And we'll see more of that next week. But here he says it is, it is like a lightning bolt striking from the east to the west. You can't help but see it. It is sudden and obvious. So don't believe the false Christs. And that's how it will be in Jerusalem. That is how the old ways will end with false prophets leading some astray, with destruction, with the Roman army at the gates, with the temple being desecrated and ending the worship in the temple. And it happens just as Jesus prophesied, just as he told to his disciples. He says in verse 24, This generation, meaning theirs, will not pass away until these things take place. In other words, some of you are going to hear this. You will see Rome come into Jerusalem. You will bear witness to this. And end temple worship for good. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we ever find a rebuilt physical temple in Jerusalem where the sacrificial system of the temple of worship has resumed. It's just, it's not there. And the reason it's not there is because we have something better. You see, we do see another temple. And we do see worship. In fact, we're experiencing it today on this Lord's Day. The end of the old way was the beginning of a new We're reading in verse 29 again, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the fall of the temple, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And what Jesus is talking about here is that immediate time after the temple is laid waste. He's not talking about his second coming yet. In fact, the language he uses here is is that immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the days the temple is destroyed, this will happen. The end of the old way, but the beginning of the new. A new way of worshiping in God, of enjoying His presence forever. It is the fulfillment of the promises of Christ our Lord. 
Jesus says here that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And that is colorful prophetic language. He's using that in a metaphorical sense. He's not saying literally the moon will stop giving light. It'll still be there. But he's talking about some dramatic shift in power. In fact, we see that same language in the prophecies of the Old Testament used to describe God's judgment upon particular cities or nations. For example, in Amos 6, 9, we read, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun to go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And he's speaking those words against the kingdom of Egypt of that time, speaking of the demise of the kingdom of Egypt. The sun of Egypt will go down. It will be darkened. Something else will come up in its place. There will be a change in power. That's exactly what happens. We see similar language in Isaiah 13.10, predicting the fall of Babylon. Again, the heavens don't literally change their appearance. The stars don't literally fall from the heavens. But for Egypt, for Babylon, the proverbial sky did fall. They suffered greatly. Their kingdoms came to an end at the hand of invading armies. Much like Jerusalem would be changed at the hand of Rome in AD 70. And so that is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Look, the temple will be destroyed. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. A change is happening. The new is beginning. The power that falls with the destruction of Jerusalem, as we noted, is the end of the old way, the old administration of the covenant of grace. But when that happens, when the heavens shake, down comes a new and better way of knowing God and worshiping Him, the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so, as Jesus says, the sun and the moon will, will be darkened. They won't give their light anymore. You won't have the light of the temple. Instead, you will have the sign of the Son of Man. That is the gospel. It is the proclamation that Christ the King has come and He has been made plain and He is ruling now and forevermore. And we can see Him and know Him and enjoy Him already. In fact, Jesus says when that happens, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That is a mourning of repentance. It's the same thing we see in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And Jesus expands that prophecy to go beyond just the inhabitants of Jerusalem to include all the tribes of the earth, mourning and repentance, turning in faith, and recognizing Him as the prophesied Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And that little phrase that Jesus uses points us to His ascension. 
A coming doesn't mean a coming to earth. It simply means a movement through the clouds. And as we see recorded in Acts 1 through 2, as Jesus tells his disciples those final words, as he's ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he does ascend in power and great glory. And he promises that that power and great glory will continue through the Spirit as God works through his church to build Christ's kingdom here and now until he returns. Of course, the, the signs of power and glory have, have changed, but the Lord is still there. He is still reigning at the right hand of the Father. In other words, a new temple is being built. In fact, Peter tells us of that temple, that new way. He says, you yourselves, speaking to believers, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And how is that temple being built? Verse 31, as Jesus says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And those angels can be on of, understood of one of two things, either messengers, because that's what the word angel means, simply a messenger. It could be his people, his pastors, his missionaries, his servants that he's sending out to trumpet the gospel as God gathers in the elect his people. Or it could be literal angels which are representative of the power of God at work in the world to redeem sinners back to himself. You see, both those things God uses as his means to bring about the redemption of his people. It is necessary, as Paul said, that the gospel be proclaimed. It is also necessary that the Spirit work personally in the hearts of people to draw them to Christ and overcome their sins so that they might believe in Jesus. And through those things, God is gathering His elect, His, His people f- that He has purposed to save from the, before the foundation of the world was created to Himself through the trumpet call of the Gospel. And so indeed, a better temple is arising and has risen from the ashes of the old temple. And it is still being built even to this day. From Ann Arbor, Michigan, to Tokyo, Japan, to the Middle East, God is building His temple here. And one day it will be completed and then our King will return. And so the old way had to end. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't sufficient. It had to end so that the new way, the new and better way could be raised up. And because of that, because the new has come, it means that the best is yet to come. Jesus, in closing, You see these words in verses 32 through 32 from 
32 from 33. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So when you see all these things, you know that he is near at its very gates. Trees, we know, go through these different changes, right? I mean, we see that, especially in the fall here in Michigan. It's my favorite season. I think we all would like some fall weather right now. Uh, But you know, when the leaves start to change... The cooler weather is on its way. And, and the same is true with the spring. When you, when you first see the world starting to green up again from all the, the grayness, that, uh, that idea of death of, uh, that was there during winter, you know that summer's on its way. That's the idea here. The already of Christ's kingdom has come. We are in the spring And summer is on its way. God has promised through Christ that He will redeem all His people, that He will give us life with Him forevermore, and that most certainly must come to pass. And we know that because Jesus tells us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Temples may crumble and nations may fall. The world may end, but the word of the Lord endures forever. His promises endure forever. And so, Christian, you don't need a new temple in Jerusalem, for you already are part of a better temple. You don't need flashy systems of worship designed to make you feel good, to somehow feel the presence of God, you already have the presence of God with you right now, right here, through His Word, through the ordinary means of His grace. You don't need to listen to false Christs and false promises that tell you how your life will improve and become better, for you have that promise that makes all things better. The promise of Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you, we marvel at your work in this world. As you worked in the past through Uh, things that seem so horrible, like the the fall of the temple, and you use those things to bring about something better, something more beautiful, a new and living way through Christ our Lord, so that we might worship you and know your presence, so that you would make us your priests and kings forever and ever. So Father, I pray that you would Remind us of these things, even as we see suffering in this world, even as we experience it ourselves, that like our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in the first century, we will not fear, for we know that the better thing is ours, and the best is yet to come. Continue to strengthen our hearts in this great promise of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.